As an enterprise, effective communication with employees, customers, and vendors is vital for company growth. Now, with Studio, there's a powerful solution for business communication, podcasts. Studio will host, manage, and distribute private podcasts for your business and provide the support and resources needed to launch and maintain them successfully. It's no wonder that companies like Salesforce, Nike, and Facebook trust Studio to power their private podcasts. Request a free, personalized demo today at the letter ustudio.com. Be sure to mention you heard about it on Equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. This is the last show of January 2020. We're already a month down, which is pretty crazy. I'm Alex Wilhelm and joining me today is Danny Crichton. Danny, how are you? I am surviving this New England winter and can't wait for my trip to SF next week. We're both going to SF next week, actually. And so Equity, I wasn't going to bring this up, but I guess we will. Equity is going to be uh, back in the TC studio with some guests over the next couple of weeks. So if you like seeing us on video, if you like us having VCs on to banter with us, that is coming up. And if you're tired of seeing us on a screen on YouTube, you can also see us in person Friday night, 6 p.m. at the TechCrunch Winter Party with tickets available at TechCrunch.com. We'll be there soon. But... Today, we are still on the East Coast, and there's a lot to get through, including a fascinating story about Kleiner Perkins. Apparently, Kleiner isn't spending money on everything these days. Yeah, apparently, Kleiner has spent so much money, it's now a story up on TC. Our own Jonathan Schieber wrote something uh, about how KP has already kind of spent through most of its $600 million fund. Danny, you've been a VC, um, so I was curious, when you saw this headline, what was your first gut reaction? Well, I mean, you always, you know... Funds go when they need to go, right? You, if you have great investment opportunities, you're always going to invest. Um, so you're not going to say no to things just because you're trying to space out your investments or you, you do the best you can on that. Nonetheless, the, the fact of the matter is that they just raised a year ago and all $600 million apparently has gone, according to John and his sources. And so that's unusual because it's really hard to fundraise and it does another fund um, so quickly after you just raised the last one. Why and is re- that? Is that because returns haven't come in yet? So you don't really have evidence to show that the preceding fund is going to be a strong vintage? Uh, yes, certainly. I mean, that's part of it. And the second is, um, you know, when you, you're fundraising, even for the best funds, you spend significant time talking to limited partners, LPs. And um, the reality is, is that uh, you don't want to talk to those people, you know, literally <laughs> half time of your life. Um, and so when you're going out to fundraise every year, you're going to spend a significant amount of time talking to, um, you know, people at endowments, people who are not founders, people who are not in the industry. And so um, it's really tough to continue to keep your your sourcing strategy kind of going if, if you're constantly fundraising like that. Okay, I want to drill down to some of the language here because Sheebs said, and we call him Sheebs internally. There's a little TechCrunch factoid for you. Um, he said they, quote, already invested much of the $600 million it raised last year. So my question to you is, do you think this implies that they've actually spent all the money or that they spent all the money they're not holding back for follow-on investments? Because many funds will save a portion of their fund size to allow them to keep putting money into bets they made from that fund to keep their percentages up in the companies they picked as they kind of continue to fundraise. So do you think it's actually all gone or just the available amount for primary investments is gone? I assume it's the available amount of money, right? So you're not just reserving for additional follow-on rounds, which typically is like a third of a fund at their stage. Maybe it declines if it's a lot of growth stage investment. And then, of course, you're reserving management fees. So if in the classic 2 and 20 model, you might reserve 2% 2% times five years, and let's say 1.5% for five years, that's adding up to 10 to 15% of the fund that just goes to management fees. Kleiner, being the firm it is, may actually have numbers higher than that. I don't know. Sure. But what's interesting here is, is really, we saw the same thing with SoftBank, where it raised $93 billion for the Vision Fund, and it burnt through the entire fund 
extremely rapidly. Like my understanding is it's like what 70, 80% is gone and out the door. And so again, like we're seeing more and more firms just blowing through the capital so quickly, which it, which is a sign of both like just the amount of deals that are coming through, the number of startups that are growing. I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we follow this obviously religiously on equity. There's just so much great stuff coming through. And so I think the question for a lot of folks is, okay, you're doing this huge spate of investments. I, I think Kleiner probably has done what? One, two dozen investments in the last 12 months? They've for, done, uh, yeah, many that I've seen. So yeah. Right. Just the ones we've seen is in that kind of category, right? And so it's it just hard as a firm to like, constantly be ingesting all these new investments, right? You know, at the end of the day, you have a couple of partners, each of whom might have done three or four deals last year. Like, what are they going to do this year? Are they going to do another three or four, each with board seats, each with more time commitments, each with more sort of responsibilities and obligations to those startup founders? Or, or how do they sort of handle that? That's why firms always try to balance it out over time so that you're always doing two, maybe three in one given year per, par per partner. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing that I was doing after I read the story was to go back through my own notes on, on KP and I had gone to their SF offices last, I think it was like August or September of last year uh, with the old Crunchbase news crew. And we had talked about their deal pace, if you will. And they had invested KP 17 in about a year and a half. So a relatively short time window. And we're talking about KP 18 in case you're just catching up if you're listening. And they said they might deploy it at a similar, if not more rapid pace, which could put it down to a year. So in reality, after going back through what we kind of knew ahead of time, this isn't as crazy as it kind of sounded when I first saw the headline this morning. It's actually almost in line with expectations. And I think we, you and I both know why, which is that the time uh, between talking to someone and writing a check has been dramatically compressed. It used to be a multiple month process. You would meet someone, you would talk. You go to the Four Seasons seven times, you meet their cats, and then all of a sudden, you know their blood type, and bada boom, bada bang, you cut a check. Now, you meet them, you fist bump, and you hand them your Venmo account. So this has gone and changed. And um, uh, there's a quote from Dan Premack on Twitter talking about uh, Josh Koppelman from First Round, who said that the amount of time that they have spent between first contact to term sheet has gone from 90 days in 2004 to nine in 2020. And I'm curious how that how you feel about that, because it's not a lot of time to make a choice that involves millions of dollars. No, certainly. I mean, I, I will say first that I, I actually don't know the blood type of any of my startup founders that I've ever invested in or anyone who I've ever worked with. That was an exaggeration. I Just just, just to be clear. But I, I will say this. I, I think there's a couple of patterns here going underway. One is I think founders have gotten a lot more sophisticated about fundraising. And so they don't talk to uh, VCs early. They're not briefing people in advance. What they're doing is, you know, on a Monday, they're going out to 90 VCs simultaneously and going, the window is open. You know, you start to figure out who wants to join. There's a huge frenzy. You close really fast, particularly at the earliest stage rounds, the seeds, the series A's. Those, those go really, really fast. And so, you know, you might not actually have as little time as you actually expect there. Like, I don't think they spent 90 days with their seed company, you know, prospects 10 years ago, and now they're only spending five or six days. My guess is, is that they just don't have that, like, hey, heads up, in a couple months now, I'm going to be fundraising a seed down the line. Like, keep me in mind as you're sort of planning out the fund. Now founders are just kind of walking into the front door and being like, I in. And I think, you know, we're, we're seeing that pattern. And then, you know, we saw with House, H-A-U-S, uh, -A, -A, a sort of, um, what is it, tonic beverage company? I'm probably getting yes. that wrong. Um, neither of us are alcoholics. So it's an it's a, it's a alt, an alt alcohol. Alt I think, alcohol. I think House does have booze in it, but some of the other ones don't, but it's lower ABV beverage. House is 15%. Yeah, it's okay. a wine substitute with higher alcohol, but it's, it's, it's an alt alcohol <laughs> substitute. So it's a whiskey you, light is what I'm me, hearing. I don't know if you saw the, the party round there, but that was a, 
I mean, ironically for the company, but it was like a party round of what, 150 investors. And I, I think it's something very, very similar to this, where you're just seeing more and more people showing up, people are willing to write checks, and some of those checks are really small, right? So if it's 10, 20, 30K, literally people are writing checks in the meeting. And I just don't think that that was the case before. So this party round, by the way, I, I was surprised to see it because House, House, not House, by the way, not H-O-U-Z-Z, H-A-U-S. There's two companies that have odd spellings of House that are both raising money. That's why our jobs suck, just in case you were curious. I was surprised they didn't have a lead investor on their round. It seemed to be a, a real weird collection of, of everybody that had money. Uh, you know, I think three years ago, I would have said kind of a negative signal. But as we talked about recently on the show about signaling and and how, th how that now kind of shakes out. Maybe this is actually a, a show of strength. Maybe this is them kind of bragging that they can get that many people to the table at once without anyone demanding lead or getting out. I, I, I actually don't know how to read this. One of the challenges is that, again, in the context of Kleiner, if you have an opportunity to invest with meaningful ownership in a good and up-and-coming company, you're going to take it because you just don't know what's going to down, down, down the line. Uh, but a caveat, though, we were talking about this before the show, kind of just getting our notes in order and prepping. And you had said something about how uh, if you don't raise in 90, don't feel terrible about this. I'm kind of curious, what was your sentiment behind that? Like, Because I guess not all rounds are being done this quickly. Everyone has to do their own fundraise. You do hear these stories. There are companies that fundraise in 48 hours. It's true. Um, I've been a part of those fundraises in a past life. I've seen you know, a series B go down in like 36 hours from like first meeting to term sheet. But but those are still the exception. And, you know, we're in a, a world of exceptions. All startups are exceptional, but like they're exceptions of exceptions. And I would say, you know, the median is still multiple weeks. Certainly there are founders in my, you know, friend group who have fundraised for a year or two and have talked to 100, 200 investors to lock in a seed round. And so you, you see the full gamut. We do kind of focus on this because it's interesting, but it's not, it's not typical and it's not maybe the benchmark you should really be kind of guiding yourself towards. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, but let's go ahead and talk about a couple of rounds uh, briefly here, including one that you picked up this week uh, from a group called Free Agency. And I immediately thought sports, and it turns out that I was wrong. It's a sports metaphor, and they've raised a couple million dollars. So please tell us, what is this business? Yeah, so Free Agency is a New York City-based company that wants to essentially create, uh, similar to the sports and entertainment worlds, a, a group of talent agents that will help their first verticals in the tech industry. But basically, engineers, product managers, designers do better at their job search, negotiate better pay, and make sure that they're working on the right projects to benefit their career. Up front, it's really focused on you know salary negotiation, equity package negotiation. But long term, they really do believe in this model of, hey, can we help manage your career over the next 10 to 15 years? Similar to how a talent agent might do this for an up-and-coming actor or actress, sports agent might do this for an up-and-coming sports star of like, hey, how do we make sure you're working with the right mentors, coaches, so that we can get a little bit of a piece of that puzzle? And so for them, the revenue model is a 5 to 10% income share agreement. So similar to what we've talked about last week with Lambda School, income share agreements are really popular these days among investors. The big news from them is, one, that they raised a seed round in two tranches. Last year, they raised a total of $5.35 million Part of that was in July. Part of that was in December, led by Resolute Ventures and Bloomberg Beta. And the second is they had actually 100 free agents on the platform today. So people who have signed, my understanding is an agreement to actually turn over 5 to 10% of income to the company as that company negotiates on their behalf with companies and potential employers. Okay, so a couple of questions. One, I like the idea in general. I don't get why talent is democratic into like sports and entertainment, get agents, and then no one else does. That seems a little bit weird now that I think about it in this context. Especially because you and I know that the highest performers in the world of tech already command salaries that are commensurate with sports and entertainment people. So why doesn't this exist? It's almost a surprise 
Um, why not have some negotiate for you? But my question is, is this really aimed at like the top 5% of like the developer market or the CMO market or the Alex and Danny podcasting on a Thursday afternoon market? Like, like who is this targeted for? Is it most people, some people, eight people? Like, you know, how big is the TAM there? I mean, I think that's the open question. I mean, they, they are very people focused, although I, I think they want to use software and technology to help with a lot of this. You know, there's a huge block for a lot of engineers going from or, or product managers going from like what's called the senior title you know, senior product manager, senior engineer to the directorate level, right? Mm -hmm. So people with five to 10 years of experience want to make that leap because that's where, particularly at the FANG companies, you see the salary leap. It's quite significant. The equity leap, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Yep. I think the TAM could actually be quite big if you believe in the power of human capital, right? Like there's thousands of engineers who could potentially do these jobs. There's lots of growth in the industry. Imagine starting with someone at a boot camp and saying, hey, you're super smart. You're gung-ho. We believe in you. And over the next 10 years, we're going to be backing you every step of the way to make sure that you make that salary at the end of the road. And we're going to share in that upside. And I think for some folks, I don't know if that'll be true for everyone. Ironically, one of the reasons that sports and entertainment are popular for agents is simply because those people don't want to manage their business side of the relationship. Right. Actors and actresses want to act. You know, sports stars, yep. if you're a baseball pitcher, you want to pitch. You're not looking to negotiate with club owners, you know, in eight different you know, teams and trying to negotiate your, your comp. Um, but people in the entrepreneurial community obviously do. Like, that's what we do on a regular basis. We're in a business. So I think for a lot of folks, it's it's sort of putting themselves in the mentality of like, look, you already outsourced so much of, of your income in other categories. We're going to talk about food delivery at some point in this show. Your food delivery may actually already be 5% of your uh, goddamn income. And so so at what point do you sort of say, hey, maybe I should give 5% just to make more money uh, yeah. to be able to pay for DoorDash to be profitable down the road. But we'll get there in a second. Dude, dude, for real. So like, this is a little off topic, but um, but I got married last year and then my wife and I combined our finances and uh, she's our day-to-day -day accountant person and I'm like our, our like investment director, if you will. And uh, she just looked at like my credit card statement and she was like, Uber Eats, Uber Eats, Uber Eats, Uber Eats. And she was just, she was like, holy shit. Because in SF, <laughs> I didn't cook. I just, whenever I was in SF, I would just like order in every single day. Anywho, uh, going back to what you said, though, about not wanting to manage the business side of your life, uh, developers are a great example of that. I don't think developers are wildly business savvy in general. They tend to be very good at being engineers, right? You know, so I can see this fitting in there. But one last thought before we bounce, which is, is this, is the existence of this business and the demand for it, in your mind, a signal that we're somewhere near the peak of the market? Like, unemployment is very low. Companies are very cash rich. Is, is this an indication of just how good things are? Or... Is this an idea that we should have had 20 years ago and we're just now late to it uh, as a or, or is tech late to it as an industry? It's a tough question. I, I would say I, I think we are maybe a little bit at the peak. Obviously, un low unemployment makes it a lot easier to pull off a model like this. The, the key question, again, is is, is culture change. It, it, it's simply if, if people believe that there are talented engineers, designers, product managers worth a million dollars a year. Why shouldn't someone help you represent that to make sure it's not one point one? million a year right. right or even if you're let's say at the at the entry level salary for google where you're at maybe 90 to 120k you know again another five percent that's all they have to negotiate on your behalf to get you to a different place to me it's the the biggest challenge here is cultural change i think it makes total sense i would do it today but i i think for a lot of folks you know we're in the market we know friends who do this we get data from each other their standard pay packages it's less complicated than show business let's say and particularly sports where you have ancillary revenues you have sponsorship deals, you have multiple projects, multiple streams you can package with like NBC, right? You can do three shows at once. 
mostly you have a job at a company and that's your only source of income for most people in the industry. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how that progresses in the next couple of years. But I think it's an ambitious play. And certainly the fact that, you know, we're seeing a doubling down on income share agreements, not just in ed tech, but now post ed tech, now into the mm -hmm. job world, I think is really interesting. Putting a pen in that, we're going to talk about Vercata really quick or Vercata. I don't know which one it is. If you don't know, Vercata raised an $80 million round this week at a $1.6 billion valuation. And uh, we were trying to summarize what is Vercata, Vercata before the show. Uh, Ring for Enterprise was Danny's uh, contribution. I thought it was like cybersecurity for the IRL world. But the gist is it's a combination of security cameras and software that allows for much better building security. Because if you didn't know it, most security cameras are garbage. Most security tech is out of date. It's like VHSs in the back of some television that no one else ever looks at. In the Louvre, they're all fake anyways, according to the movies. So this round caught our eye because the company tripled its valuation from $540 million, I think, to $1.6 since its April 2019 Series B. So, Danny, a lot of value creation, a lot of capital going in. First question has to be, they dropped 80 mil out of 1.6. They picked up 5%. The investor uh, picked up 5%. Who buys 5% of a company? Like, why didn't they put more capital in? Why is it so slim? The, the, the ratio just blew my mind when I read this. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it just, again, it's something we don't see that often. I mean, so the, the question is, is this may be the early announcement. It might be tranched, just speculating here, not knowing anything. But like one option is maybe they have another 80 million available that the company can take at the same price in three to six months, right? So it, it could just come in a couple of different sets. The second is obviously that the company's just doing super, super well. And at some point, any ownership is going to do well. According to Josh Constant, who wrote the story up for TechCrunch, the company tripled its revenue last year. It now has 2,500 clients, 25 of the Fortune 500 companies. We, what's also interesting here is Josh had interviewed the founders. And one of the things that came out that was really interesting was that the seed and the A were extremely difficult to raise. One of the founders was basically saying this was not a market that a lot of people saw. People thought it was actually quite dumb. It's basically like cameras as they should have been 20 years ago. And a lot of VCs didn't see the value here. And so, you know, as a reminder from like the speed we're talking about with seed, but it's like, no one saw this three, four years ago. Now they're raising like epic amounts of money at like really high valuations, not taking any dilution. And the market has changed. Plus, you know, the success of the company has changed. And so at the end of the day, the numbers really matter. The numbers really matter. And I love to see a company that was not in favor early on do well, because if they struggle to raise a seed, they struggle to raise an A, and then all of a sudden they would go B and then a huge C. It implies that, you know, this was a contrarian bet that people actually couldn't see. And that's what venture capital is, you know, for. It's supposed to be a bet on things that are maybe a bit contrarian, a bit out there that can go very quickly and kind of uh, prove people wrong. Um, in this round, Next47, Sequoia, Meritech. And um, you were telling me how these founders have some prior experience that made them a little bit interesting. I wanted to double click on that and hear about what they've done before. According to them, struggled to fundraise the seed of the Series A, but their their lineage and their pedigree is really strong. So Hans Robertson um, was the co-founder of Meraki, which sold to Cisco for $1.2 billion and is sort of kind of a notoriously strong company. A lot of people came out of that, and there's been a lot of startups from that mafia. And then Philippe Calizan, I'm hoping I'm saying that right, along with two others, had started a, a company called CourseRank, which was popular at Stanford and a couple other Ivy League schools that wasn't in and of itself successful, but was like really considered a, a really strong product back probably almost a decade ago. And so what I thought was interesting is like that that was not a necessarily a huge success, but like they doubled down again. They went to a new market. They went from, you know, consumer to enterprise. It's sort of like, you know, they found their space and they're actually winning the second time around. So it's, it's a classic lesson of like, sometimes you just have to get started. It may not be the first project, the second project or the third project, but sometimes one of these projects hits and it hits really strong. 
Speaking about things that hit really strong, I have a I have a triple threat for us this week, essentially. Sticking to the fundraising topic, just give everyone kind of where we're at. Uh, I've covered a couple of rounds from companies in the last couple of weeks that have been focused on building insurance marketplaces for consumers where you can go and find uh, a better quote for your insurance. Now, if you've watched sports, and I'm a new sports fan, so I've seen more advertising in the last six months than I have in the last six years, uh, you'll note that like, every other ad is like, some insurance company being like, you should bundle your home and auto. You can save 48 cents. Woo. And then they just repeat them throughout the entire game until you want to just bash your skull and say, fine, Geico, you can have my money. Take it. If you'll leave me alone, I'm actually going to buy NBA league pass next year to avoid any more Geico, Allstate, nationwide farmers insurance commercials because they make me actually want to die. Anywho, these companies are, are trying to put together a better way to approach buying insurance on the internet by bringing consumers essentially uh, a digital uh, brokerage. So you go there, you put in your information and they pull in all the quotes and kind of let you pick what you want. The economics here are pretty good, it turns out, and the growth has been fantastic. So inside the last couple of weeks, Gabi, G-A-B-I, has raised a $27 million round. Insurify, I think, raised a $23 million round. And then I think it was on Thursday, Policy Genius picked up 100. So I'm, I'm working on a piece right now, looking at the other players in the space and why there's so much capital going in, but it turns out there's just an enormous fee pool and there's billions of tens of billions of dollars every year in available TAM for companies that can connect individual consumers to insurance products. And all these companies are attracting money because they've been growing very quickly. I think Policy Genius, if I recall my, from my notes, is at like a 60 million annualized run rate up like 10x since its last round. So there's a ton of growth here. And it's kind of a, like a cluster, Danny, that I'm fascinated by because i would not have guessed that this tech to enabled techly techie kind of thing it's not like you know ai would have so much uh, market value and so the why i brought all this up was to ask you a question essentially which is that when you see three or four companies that are competing raise inside of a one month period how much did those companies know that their peers were raising at the same time and then they all kind of race to get it done or is it just like dumb luck that they all landed around the same time I think it's it's neither. I, I think the answer is actually more macro, which is, you know, the fintech world has been on fire and everyone's fundraising, you know, fintech, tens of billions of dollars went into the category last year. Insurance, you know, some people would say it's not fintech. You get into a whataboutism argument, but or no true Scotsman, no no true fintech company was an insurance fintech company. But what I do think is is happening here is, is, is there's a lot of reasons why insurance is getting a lot of money. One of the key reasons is marketing. As you brought up, you know, Geico and all these folks spend tens and tens and tens of millions, if not billions of dollars on TV advertising, direct mail campaigns. I still get a, a letter from Geico almost weekly to get auto insurance. And I haven't owned a car in eight years, which means that they have sent just dozens and dozens and dozens of things to my house for no reason whatsoever. There's people tracking that, right? And I think what you're seeing with a lot of these new companies, similar to direct-to-consumer brands, is they're really reinventing marketing around insurance. You know, Ultimately, yes, the apps are better. Yes, it's a better experience overall. So their NPS scores are better. So yes, there's a, a bunch of other reasons that also make sense. But the core of it is, is that the economic model is just more competitive. They're able to target the right users better. They're able to hit them on you know, SEO, SEM, a bunch of other kind of channels, social. That gives them better economics than incumbents. And you know, in insurance, it's, it's all about BIPs, right? You're only, you, you only need to make a little bit more of a, a scrape than anyone else in order to compete in the marketplace and spend more money. On the couple of BIPs point, though, I mean, don't don't forget that we've also seen insurance products themselves get built in a venture capital context. We're talking about Lemonade, Root Insurance, Metro Mile. So when we think about what counts as fintech, you know, no true fintech, whatever, 
there's not just this collection of companies that are working to help people find insurance. There are other companies also backed by venture capital money trying to build new insurance products. So it's a pretty cool space. Um, it's one of those times when I've had to learn a lot of stuff by talking to people because like you, I, my, my wife does all the driving, so I don't drive. So I didn't, haven't bought insurance. So like, I didn't know anything. So I had to learn about like loss ratios and how COGS works in insurance and all of this stuff. It's a fascinating space, tons of money um, and really cool. But and it, it is it is really cool. I mean, for me, uh, I I've enjoyed following all the uh, announcements. The big challenge is I've I've had to increase my budget for both coffee and wine. You know, coffee <laughs> to actually stimulate myself to be able to get through some of these presentations about insurtech, and then wine to like wipe away my depression after following up. I mean that that's one of the more honest things I've heard on Equity in like the last six months. Um, we're gonna wrap up today though with a little bit of drama from the SoftBank world. Uh, which is that two companies we talked about on this show ad nauseum tried to combine into one super app and then it didn't happen. And we're talking about Uber and DoorDash. And uh, if you didn't know, Uber has a competing product at DoorDash called Uber Eats. And uh, they're both backed by SoftBank and the Vision Fund, that enormous bucket of money that was sitting there in Japan that then spread around the world. And they've been whacking the crap out of each other, essentially, in different markets. And uh, SoftBank wanted to reduce burn rates at its company in a po- companies in a post-WeWork world. And then it didn't work out. So they didn't merge. They're still competing. And then adding to that, there was a great story today in the Wall Street Journal uh, discussing how in Latin America, um, several SoftBank-backed firms are, again, beating the crap out of each other for market share. And so, Danny, we're seeing a multi-continent intra-SoftBank battle for market share in a way that I think is kind of hilarious. Like, didn't everyone see this coming? Like, who was surprised by this? Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that, you know, everyone's kind of competing everywhere. Um, the, the part that I, I've taken this from the Financial Times article, but um, using data from Second Measure, uh, they, they showed that DoorDash is uh, 37% of all sales in December for food delivery in the United States compared to 21% for Uber, right? So DoorDash is about 16 points ahead of where Uber stands. But what's interesting is when you actually break it down by state, there's huge variations um, both across state borders, but also just regionally around the country. Um, In places like Alabama, Mississippi, you have Waiter, which is like dominating the market. Uber Eats seems to do well in places like Florida and Georgia. And then DoorDash has like huge uh, market share in places like Kansas and Kentucky. And so what's what's crazy to me is not just that they're not giving up, like, let's say the U.S. or they're, you know, they're not even giving up like cities. They're all trying to do everything at the same time. And, you know, if you recall back when the Uber Lyft story was going on, it was always this question of like, well, Lyft gave up a lot of international expansion. Um, in order to win in the U.S. and compete effectively, yep. whereas Uber was trying to win in overseas to use those as base of operations to compete better in the U.S., right? You would use your Russian profits to actually fund your New York competition or whatever, which sounds worse than it really is. I thought um, that was Trump's strategy, actually. <laughs> Anyways, keep going. Um, this suddenly, the, the darkness dies in democracy. Don't or, email or, us or, about politics. It was one joke. Anyways, keep going. <laughs> But I think what's interesting here is we're, we're actually not seeing that. Like, we're, we're, they're all still competing on all fronts. And I think there is a little bit of this sense of consolidation is inevitable and they're just waiting to get the best terms at the end of the deal. And at least in this ter- time around, or at least according to the Financial Times, DoorDash basically did not get the price it wants. It, it owns yep. the market. It owns a lot of the growth. It's actually doing okay, not great, and I imagine unprofitable, um, but they're not getting kind of the stock and Uber that they would want in order to close it out. And so that's just going to be an ongoing problem. I, I think they're going to see past each other for a long period of time. Yeah. First of all, what's Waiter? which I believe is spelled W-A-I-T-R, and I had never heard of it. I know this makes me sound like a coastal elite, and I am, but I'm curious, like, how did this company exist and have material market share in, in other places that I haven't even heard of? Like, who, who's Waiter? Have you heard of this before? I, I have not heard of Waiter. 
Yeah, amazing. Um, I didn't. There's there's so many companies doing this. It's kind of shocking. Uh, and keep in mind though that uh, Uber Eats loses more money than DoorDash. Uh on an adjusted profit basis. So it's actually a worse global deal for Uber than DoorDash is currently, but that's a bit sketchy because it's hard to figure out all the mechanics and we're using numbers that are a bit out of date. Um, the information reported, uh, I think it was last year that DoorDash expected to have an operating loss of around 450 million this year, whereas Uber Eats is burning through like over 300 million on an adjusted basis, EBITDA, just an EBITDA basis per quarter. So it, it, it's messy. There will be consolidation. I don't know who will blink first. Postmates is still on sale and still theoretically trying to go public. Um, it's it's a fascinating space in the market. And uh, as long as burritos still arrive at my house, I, I'm happy. So I don't particularly care who wins. Um, yeah, I, I think there's two sides there. I mean, one is, you know, these markets are not equal in size, right? So for instance, Grubhub still owns the New Jersey, New York, Connecticut corridor pretty heavily. And that corridor is really important. You know, food delivery, obviously, in New York is a massive, massive market. You probably could build an entire company just to serve that market alone. And, and be in a pretty nice revenue position. The second piece is that we have seen consolidation globally. So um, Korea's top food delivery company, uh, Baymin uh, Minjok, uh, Pedali Minjok, uh, just got bought by Delivery Hero, uh, the German company. And we're starting to see this cross country as well. So what's interesting is we're not seeing consolidation domestically, which actually would be, which is sort of more obvious to me, but we are seeing it internationally in different markets. Yeah. Well, the question is, can DoorDash raise more capital at a similar valuation to its prior prices and then keep this game going? And if so, will it be SoftBank money? And if it is, what does Uber do? Because I will be peeved if I'm Uber and I'm trying to build my Uber Eats business as part of the growth engine of both GMV and NetRev for my business as I clean up my profitability. And if one of my chief investors is financing my competition, which is undercutting me on price and distro, I mean, geez, I would be uh, livid is the word that comes to mind. Um Anywho, let's pause. Uh, just so everyone knows, there's some IPO stuff coming up. This show is coming out on Friday morning, so it may be that by the time you've heard this, that One Medical has priced its IPO. It's going to happen right around the time you finish recording here on Thursday evening. And then next week should be the Casper IPO, so get ready. It's going to be a hot couple of days for uh, the first venture-backed unicorn-ish IPOs of 2020. And Danny, I have to say, I'm incredibly excited. I'm incredibly excited. Maybe they'll do a joint IPO product launch of like a new hospital mattress bed. That's the worst joke we've had on the show. And on that note, we'll wrap it up. I'm Alex Wilhelm. I'm Alex on Twitter. This is Danny Crichton. He's please don't follow him on Twitter. And we're out of time. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Alex. This week's episode was produced, recorded, and edited by Christopher Gates. Our executive producer is Henry Pickavet. And a special thanks to TC's head of studio, Yashad Kulkarni.